The text of this morning's sermon is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14. Luke 3, 1 through 14. In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituraea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not exhort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I pray that we would hear this word, that we would tremble, that we would look to you for salvation, that our confidence would not be in ourselves, that you would destroy any spiritual pride that uh, we may have and be deceiving ourselves. God, use this for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Devastatingly good news. That's an interesting way to describe good news. But the good news, the good news, the singular good news, there's news going on all the time, but there's one news, bit of news that'll never change. It'll never cease to have power. It'll never cease to be relevant. But that good news is devastating to the pride of man. Absolutely devastating. And if the pride of man is not humbled, then the good news will be 
judgment upon them. The thing that could have come to them as good news actually returns on them in judgment and makes those people uh, very, very angry. And so this good news is an interesting uh, has has interesting effects to some. It's what they glory in the rest of their life. To others, it's what they hate. To one, this Christ is a good aroma that leads to life. To another, it leads to death. One of the most scary aspects of Luke's Gospel and Jesus' ministry and His parables is the amount of spiritual deception that the people are under so that most of Jesus' parables are speaking about two groups of people. One group is religious and thinks they're the children of God, thinks they're fine. Ten virgins waiting for the bridegroom. They're all virgins. They're all there, ready for the wedding, but five of them, their lamps go out. Others who come to a banquet, the door's already shut, and they're knocking on the door, and, and, and uh, the one who runs the banquet says, who are you? Oh, we ate with you. You taught in our streets. We're in your club. Yeah, I don't know who you are. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth for those people when they see Abraham and the prophets in the presence of God and they themselves cast out. I'm here to tell you that one of the most dangerous things, the things, thing that I often pray that God keeps me from is spiritual deception. To believe something about myself that isn't true. We're going to see in this text a whole group of people that if the world was going to take a vote, would say, these are the spiritual ones. And John says, what in the world are you doing here? You thought this was a party for you to come to? You thought I was (laughs) your prophet? Think again. We're at the point in this Gospel right at the brink of Jesus' ministry. Uh, John the Baptist is the one. He's the forerunner. He's the one preparing the way for Christ. He's the one preparing the people's hearts to be ready to see their God. This is 18 years after our last passage when he was 12 years old in the temple. What we looked at last week. And once again, much like he did in chapter 1, Luke sets Jesus' ministry and Jesus' life in the context of the political powers of the day. Our salvation, I mean, here's one of the truths you've heard me say so many times, but it's so important to know, is that your salvation and my salvation was worked at a point in time in history. It's not philosophical. If you're going to have any assurance that you're saved, then you're going to have to know that Jesus really was a real person. He lived at a real time in history. He lived a perfect life. He really bore your sins and He really died on a cross. 
And look at how Luke starts this passage, the beginning of Christ's ministry uh, inaugurated by the forerunner. Here's what he says in verse 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Now, Jesus was born under Caesar Augustus. And Augustus died on the 19th of August, A.D. 14. And we're told in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So this is August... Uh, for, or th- this is uh, 15 years after, so we're in 29 A.D. When, when John is saying this. We can know the time when his ministry began. And the ruler, the king of Rome, was Tiberius Caesar. And uh, then we're told Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch, of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and of Trachonitis and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. So these are the governors that are over the people at this time when we see uh, in a moment that the Word of God came to Zechariah. Uh, Judea was a part of the region assigned by Herod the Great to a man named Archelaus. But he ruled so badly that his subjects uh, petitioned the Romans to remove him. And they did so, and they put in their own uh, governor. Uh, and the, from 26 A.D. to 36 A.D., that, gov- that governor over Judea was Pilate. It was someone Rome had put in place to rule uh, over uh, Judea. Uh, and then Herod is Herod Antipas. This is the son of Herod the Great, who was the Herod who was trying to kill Jesus uh, when he was born. And we don't have time to do it this morning, but if you follow the family tree of Herod the Great, it's a tree of wicked sons who are very cruel selfish uh, leaders, and they were ruling over uh, that, that uh, area. And then we're told in verse 2, during the high priest of Annas and Caiaphas. So the question is, is there's only ever one high priest at a, at a time in Israel. And uh, what Morris says, Leon Morris, he says, Ananias was the high priest from 6 A.D. to 15. And when the Roman governor Gratus disposed of him, five of his sons became high priests in due course. And Caiaphas, who held the office from 18 to 36, was his son-in-law. Luke uses the singular, which shows that he knew that there was only one high priest. He appears to mean that Caiaphas was actually in office, but that Annas is still exercising great influence, perhaps even regarded by many Jews as the true high priest. And if you remember, Jesus was taken to Annas before he was taken to Caiaphas. And here's, here's what you can know from all this. The political leaders of the day were 
less than desirable for the people of Israel and for anyone in that area. When the leaders were wicked and the leadership was poor, look at the end of verse 2, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. We've seen this sort of language before when we went through 1 Samuel. Uh, we saw that when everyone was doing everything they wanted, whatever was right in their own eyes, when there hadn't been a word from the Lord in a long time, the word of the Lord uh, was raised up in Samuel. And the prophet was given and hope was in a dark time. And here we're told that the Word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Now, we already know from Luke that he is the one who's going to prepare the way for the Lord. And the fact that the Word of the Lord came to the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, we know that he's talking about Isaiah 40, and he ends up quoting Isaiah 40. And any good Israelite would know that comfort comes in Isaiah 40. That, that's how the text begins. We're going to look at it in a moment. But the Word of the Lord came to John. And we know that uh, he's the one to prepare the way for the Lord. And in verse 3, here's where we read, He went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. John is a preacher. He's not just a baptizer. He's mainly a preacher. The baptism is a sign that's given to those who are truly repentant. That's what it means. Uh, baptism of repentance of sins. Uh, Leah Morris says, the purpose was forgiveness. Baptism was a rite of cleansing in a number of religions, it seems certain that at this time the Jews used proselyte bap baptism, a ceremony to cleanse converts from the defilement they saw as a characteristic uh, as characteristic of all Gentiles. So you got you got to really feel what's happening when John comes and feel how offensive this would be. If a Gentile was ever going to enter become a part of the people of Israel, they would make a Gentile be baptized to cleanse him from all of his filth before he could become part of the people of Israel. John's here baptizing those who are repentant of heart. As we're going to see in a moment, a lot of the Israelites and their leaders come to John for baptism. And the fact that John's willing and says Israelites need to be baptized is about the most offensive thing you could imagine uh, to these people. And we'll, we'll jump into that more in a minute. <clears throat> Verse 4 says, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. So how does his preaching, proclaiming a baptism of repentance, link to Isaiah 40? 
I, I, I think you're going to be amazed as, as we get to dive into that in, in a few minutes. But here's what's quoted from Isaiah 40. The voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. John's job, in a sense, if you're going to prepare the way for the king, you make the road as easy as possible. You don't make the road go over a mountain and down in a valley. You make this nice road that's straight so that you can see the king coming from a long way away and everyone will go, oh, that's the king. John's the one who's come preaching that you must repent of your sins. And in doing that, he's preparing a straight way so that the people are prepared to see Christ. Evidently, it's not going to go good if you run into the king and you're unrepentant. God in His grace sent John to prepare the way, to preach, to make ready for the people to see their king, their promised one. And then we're told in verse 7, and he said therefore to the crowds, uh, Luke is general, Matthew says to the scribes and the Pharisees, so uh, that's just helpful to know. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now this is a provocative moment. It's easy to read this and not really understand what's going on. But as the most religious people in Israel and a lot of the Israelites come out, and finally there's a prophet. Word is spread. A prophet has finally come. The Messiah is coming. And they're saying, our prophet, we're Israel. He's here. Let's go out to him. Let's go be a part of his ministry. This is for us. And they show up. And he says, you brood of vipers. And here's what they would have known. He's calling them sons of the devil. Because all the way back in Genesis 3, you have the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And he says, you snakes. Who told you to come to here? You got bad information. Obviously, you would have known to come here if you listened to the prophets, but you didn't listen to the prophets. You killed the prophets, you and your fathers. Who told you that you should come to this baptism? Who told you that this was your gig, that I'm your prophet, that this is where you're supposed to show up? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. If you think you're going to be involved in this baptism, 
I'm going to have to see repentance, brokenness for your spiritual pride and your selfishness. And don't even give me the argument that you're Abraham's sons. That you're getting in on Abraham's merits even though your hearts are wicked. See, John is not real popular with the religious community of his day. In fact, in Luke chapter 7, verse 28, we're told this. Or Jesus says, I tell you, those am- among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared, God is just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. The tax collectors are getting baptized. And they're saying, good news is here. But, verse 30, the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by Him. No way. John's baptizing these Gentile dogs, these people, and He's not going to baptize us. He says our repentance isn't good enough. Jesus in Luke 13 says, says this, Nevertheless, I must go on my way tomorrow and the following day. He must leave Jerusalem. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. You hear the sarcasm? <laughs> well, I better leave Jerusalem now. That's the only place, safe place for a prophet. Stay in Jerusalem, you're going to get killed because they don't want to hear from God. And then he says, O Jerusalem, O Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. And then he says, continues on in his sermon, and even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees, and every tree therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Here's what he's saying. If there's no fruit of repentance, fruit that comes from a heart keeping with repentance, those trees will be cut down and burned. And Warren Wiersbe says the picture is this. If you've ever seen a chunk of forest burned before and you stand at the perimeter, what you'll see is snakes fleeing the fire away from from uh, so that so that they're trying not to get burned and that's the picture that uh, we're given here by Luke and then in verse 10 it says and then the crowds asked him what then shall we do and he answered them <laughs> I love this scripture gets really practical whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also uh, came to be baptized and said to him, teachers, uh, I'm sorry, tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. So here's, here's what was going on. 
uh, Rome would, uh, the, the way the Romans tax people is they would farm out uh, the tax rights to the highest bidder. And the successful man would pay Rome the amount he bid, but then he'd collect more uh, for himself. So people were getting taxed unfairly by Rome, first of all, not graciously. And then those who, who bought that bid to go collect the taxes, they would collect more taxes on top of that. And John is being real, real clear here in verse 13. Collect no more than you're authorized to collect. And then in verse 14, soldiers also asked him, what shall we do? He said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats and false accusations and be content with your wages. The temptation for tax collectors was to bring in more money. The temptation for soldiers with their authority was to threaten people and to bribe them to get more money. And you start to see a theme, and we're going to dive into this. What would true repentance look like in light of these practical statements that John gives? And uh, that's what I want to dive into for the rest of, of the message. I should have told you how your notes were laid out. The first three is just simply kind of how the text uh, flows, kind of an outline of the text. And the bottom portion is application, and that's what uh, we want to look at and consider. Hear the good news and truly repent. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the main point. That's what my prayer is for myself. That's what my prayer is for you, that we would not be deceived in thinking that we're the children of God for reasons other than what the Scripture gives. And so I wrote a couple sentences here, and I want to break them into points. I'll read the sentence. Be discerning. The truly repentant place their hope outside of themselves. So let me say that again. Be discerning. The truly repentant place their hope outside of themselves and find it in the God whom they personally love revealed in the Scripture. The fruit of true repentance is the overflow of God's comfort, love, and mercy to others. Now, let's, uh, let's unpack this. First, be discerning. If the majority of the crowds that came to John seemed to be deceived, spiritually deceived, what makes you think and what makes me think that I don't need to be careful that I can't be deceived? If the Bible teaches about a, about a godly repentance in a worldly repentance, what makes me think my repentance couldn't be worldly? Uh, something Francis Chan says, when you read the parables, don't always assume you're the good soil. You just come into it and say, well, I'm the good one. Which one am I? Oh, here's where I am. That's a foolish way to read the Bible. In fact, that's a sign that you maybe haven't listened to John's ministry and to his preaching because his preaching humbles so be discerning. Second, be humbled and broken. 
Um, here I want you to go to Isaiah 40. We're going to get a little clearer view of what John's preaching was and as we try to consider what true repentance looks like. Isaiah 40, starting in verse 1. This is maybe my favorite chapter in the Bible. Uh, you can live off <laughs> the pictures we're given here. Don't you love this? After so much judgment being spoken to Israel with only periodical, but there's hope coming, finally we get this. Comfort. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and that her, her iniquity is pardoned and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That her sins can be paid for, that she can receive double, she can receive grace. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a pathway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places shall be plain. In verse 5, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. So the mouth of the Lord is speaking through John. And the climax is when the people actually get to see the Christ. And then verse 6 says this, A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and its beauty is like the flower of the field. The, gla the grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Here's the devastating part of the good news. John's message is this. All flesh is grass. Have you ever brought someone into your backyard and said, hey, i got to show you something? Isn't this neat? 20 years ago, I planted this you know, Kentucky bluegrass. And look at this, look at this, this, this little piece of grass here. Isn't this awesome? 18 years old. You know, we might say that about an oak tree. We talk about trees that way. You know, when, when my daughter was born, we planted this tree. And look, it's right here. Look how big it is. John's preaching is all flesh is grass. Whatever you think you bring to the table? Grass. All your spiritual pride, leaders of Israel? Grass. <laughs> Don't, this, this is how you prepare people for Jesus. If you really preach the Gospel, what comes first is all flesh is grass. It fades. You're not strong. The hope of Israel is not in someone taking Pilate's spot, even though I guarantee you the people were just waiting. If only so-and-so could be in there. Grass. We can do this. Can't we? Think that our hope really is going to rely in man. 
Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. You know what that means? Even though all flesh is grass, God's promises, and he promised to save a remnant of Israel, will stand forever. Here's the prophet showing up in a dark time, fulfilling what God has promised. God's word will stand forever. You see it? How, you see the illustration? God's word's more like a big oak tree, or maybe like a redwood tree that's been around for four thousand years in comparison to grass. That's the picture. And then here's why I love this text. And I knew I was going to get in trouble here. Go on, go on up on a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judea or of Judah, behold your God. I love this preaching. All flesh is grass, but look at God. Look at our God. Look at how His Word stands forever. And then he says, Behold, the Lord comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms and carry them in His bosom and gently lead those who are young. He says, look at your God. Look at His strong arms. He rules and He judges and He's a strong king and he picks up his lambs and he holds them right between his breasts. Right here. This is how he holds you. And if that isn't great enough already, and we don't have time to do all this, but then he goes on to say say this, who has measured the water in the hollow of his hands and marked off the heavens by a span? If you're wondering what kind of hands are holding you, All the waters in the entire world are just a little, just in the palm of His hands. He measures the heavens. You go try to figure out how big the universe is and read all that stuff about light years and la 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 la. Your brain explodes. And the Bible tells us our shepherd, our God, goes like this. This is a span from His thumb to His pinky. This is what the universe is like for Him. Behold your God. Look to Him. Know what you're like. The truly repentant are utterly broken about over their weakness and utterly broken about their sinfulness and they look outside of themselves for salvation. Do you think the scribes and Pharisees were coming utterly broken of their righteousness and clinging to God as their only hope? We know they weren't. You know how we know? They were afraid that they weren't going to have enough money. You know, they had two tunics. They weren't going to share with someone who had none. They didn't think God could provide for them. The tax collector didn't think God was going to provide for them. He needed to scam more money. The soldier, he didn't think, the soldier wasn't content with his wages. The unrepentant think too highly of themselves and think that they got to store up hope in themselves. They got to scheme, they got to cheat. 
they got to give themselves security. But John says, if you want this baptism, if you want to demonstrate fruits of repentance, I want to see you trust God so much, you quit cheating people out of money, tax collector. You quit abusing your power. Show me that you're trusting in God. That you're ready for the Messiah. The Pharisees didn't bode too well when they came toe-to-toe with Christ. They hated Him, but they never won once. They were exposed for who they were. So we need to be humbled and broken. The truly repentant place their hope outside of themselves and find it in God, the God whom they personally love. You will not... The the truly repentant recognize their sin is not so much making mistakes or screwing up, but their sins are relational sins against God. The truly broken consider all that God has done for them and then look at how their sin is personally affects intimacy with Him. It's a sin personally against God. That's when you start to become broken hearted. Uh, I know you've seen me illustrate repentance before. And every illustration breaks down uh, to some degree. And repentance means turning around. And I often say it's like you're living your life you know, for satisfaction over here. Then you hear Christ preached and go, I really don't think satisfaction in life is found here. My only hope is Christ, so I turn and go this way. So it's kind of a turning away from sin and turning to God. But what that illustration doesn't show is it doesn't show the condition of the heart in the turn. The way the Bible describes the repentant heart, the way Joel describes it, is a heart that is torn in two. That weeps and is broken at how a their sin is rebellion against God. Uh, true repentance sounds like Paul in 7.24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? If the Apostle Paul says, what a wretched man of am I, who will deliver me? You better be saying, what a wretched man am I? What a wretched woman am I? as you consider your flesh, who you are. What do you have to offer? Your only hope is what Romans 8 goes on to say and what the end of Romans 7 says, that our hope is in Jesus Christ the Lord. And then we find out we get the Holy Spirit that helps us put to death the deeds of the flesh, helps us repent, fight against uh, the things that are destroying our relationship with Him. Listen to Psalm 51.16. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. This is David. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Here's what the the Pharisees were coming out for the baptism because it's the outward deal. Oh, he's the prophet. 
He sounds authoritative. Let's get the outward sign. That's what they lived off of, fooling people from the outside. But what God loves is not the sacrifice, not the ritual. He loves a broken, contrite heart. That's who He looks to. That's who He comes to make Himself powerful. You say, why? Because if you're not broken and you're not contrite, then you're not glorifying God because you actually think you don't need Him. And you can do it on your own uh, apart from Him. Joel 2.12 says, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to Me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts, tear them in two, not your garments. He says, Joel says, I'm so sick of you coming out and tearing your garments in front of everyone saying, oh, I'm so sorry for my sin. And Joel says, rend your hearts and to weep. The only way you're going to have godly repentance is if you know something of the glory of God and His love for you in Jesus Christ. And then you see the remaining rebellion that has not been conquered yet. And it will. You cannot... I'm I'm just... I know you know this, those of you who are Christians in here. You cannot... Sin cannot taste good very long anymore. It gets bitter and you get broken. And if you don't, then there's a good chance that you've never seen God's love for you and how your sin is in rebellion to His his, uh, relationship or His rule and how it hurts, uh, divides relationships. We must be aware that one of the biggest hindrances to obtaining a broken heart is viewing sin as making mistakes. That that is that is a key component. Um, I'm just going to end this point here. True repentance is brokenness in self that finds hope in God. Judas had brokenness in in, in and of himself. He knew what he did was wrong. He went back and gave the coins back, and then he killed himself. No hope in God. The good news is this. All flesh is grass. Behold your God. It is actually spiritual pride to sit there and mope and say, oh, look at my sin. And never look to God. It is not all about you. It's know your grass. Now look to God. Look at your Savior. Look at what He's done for you. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, breaks your heart over it, and then takes you to the Savior. That's what He does. Satan comes and points out your sin and leaves you in devastation. There is no hope. He doesn't want you to think there's any hope for forgiveness of sin. Uh, we got to move here. Number three, be comforted by God. Uh, you saw it right away. Comfort, comfort my people. I love the fact that 
the way God views comfort is tell them who they really are and then tell them who I am. (laughs) That's offensive to some, but boy, doesn't it feel good when your eyes are open to it? I can't do it. But He can do it, and He's put His Spirit within me, and I can really fight sin, and I can really uh, seek to glorify Him with my life. And I know one day, my, the Sam Ellison that's dying on the cross right now, when I believe, well, one day will finally take his last breath, and then I will not sin again. Isn't, that is good news. Comfort my people. And then at the end of Isaiah 40, that's where we get the famous text, even youth grow tired and weary. Even the strongest among the flesh. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall be exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Isn't it beautiful? Those who are broken and repentant on the ground, God lifts up. He exalts. He gives strength to them. And those who are proud and arrogant, He knocks down. Such comforting words. Be led by the Word. God spoke really clearly through John and the Pharisees and the scribes and a lot of those in Israel and a lot of Gentiles rejected those words. Don't fight against the Word of God. Be broken by it. Be devastated by it, and then go where the Word takes you. It always takes you to Christ. Five, be lovingly selfless. Isaiah 52.7 says this, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of Him who brings good news, who publish peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who say to Zion, Your God reigns! The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice and together they sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people and redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared His holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. When you're truly repentant, you know who you are, and you know that every good gift comes from God, then you don't have to worry. You don't have to cheat. You don't have to steal. Rather, you can take one of your tunics off. Even there, the guy has two. He only tells you to give one away. And you can give it to someone else. As God pours the love of Christ into your heart, and pours the mercy of Christ into your heart. You get to beautifully declare what God is like to others. As that flows out, as your selfishness can begin to be destroyed, and that can flow out to others. And in love you can say, all flesh is grass.
but behold our God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, keep us from spiritual deception. Uh, Lord, for the person that's here right now crying out, saying, asking for greater repentance, Lord, I pray that You help that person know that that's not possible apart from Your mercy. And Father, for those who are sitting here and who are quick to defend themselves, quick to only see their righteousness and not see who they really are, especially in light of Your Word being preached, Such a dangerous position is the heart who has the light shone on them and yet they still don't see their need. God, would You have mercy on the hard-hearted that are here? Father, there may be people here that have walked with You for 20 years, have all the outward signs, but have never really been had a broken, contrite spirit. Never truly been broken over their lack of righteousness. And have never truly grabbed out for Christ as their only hope. Lord, I pray that You would show mercy and even humble those hearts. Father, all of us, You warn us in Hebrews, all of us can begin to have an evil, unbelieving heart. Keep us soft. Keep us in Your Word. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.